Uh, the Bible reading today is uh, Galatians chapter 1, all the way through to chapter 2 and a bit. Um, you can start on page 1167 of your Bibles. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among me, my people, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being, I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia, I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praise God because of me. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented them to the the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. 
On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All that they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Circumcision. Sorry, I just had to get that out for the first time in this uh, series in Galatians, given it comes up so many times uh, in the book. Welcome uh, to our six-week preaching. So glad at least Shane found that funny. Uh, Welcome to our six-week preaching series on the book of Galatians that we called No Other Gospel. If you're in uh, community groups, we've brought in studies for this series uh, from uh, Tim Keller, and if you're a community group leader and would like a copy, you can ask for them at the welcome desk today. It is a challenging book of the Bible, uh, particularly the first four chapters, to get your head around what's going on, but also how it applies to us, given this Jew-Gentile issue of circumcision is so central to the argument. I hope to show today that there is much to learn from Galatians that is timeless, that really challenges us to think, but also offers us a course correction from a path that many of us would much rather take. We'll see this morning there is a time to be black and white about some matters, there's a time to be unpopular, there's a time to be contentious. Most of us, of course, myself included, would prefer to sidestep any form of controversy or confrontation within the church, clinging to the kind of, we'll know they're Christians by our love and unity type mantra, which on the right matters, of course, is exactly what we should strive for. But on other matters, we do need to step towards conflict, call out false teaching and be ready to separate ourselves from other Christians. The Apostle Paul makes this very clear in our reading today from Galatians in a way that forces us to reconcile some of the harder truths from the Bible with our natural tendencies away from conflict. As always, we do have our SMS line open so you can ask questions and I'll answer them a little later in the service. And part of the reason we do that is we want to keep saying it's God's Word that has the final authority in these things. We want you to have your Bibles open and look to see what I'm saying matches up. And uh, don't just trust me because you were all silly enough to give me a microphone most weeks. (laughs) So please do have your Bibles open to page 1167 and feel free to light up the SMS line with questions which we'll ask later Uh, because, as I suspect, this might be one of the more controversial sermons in our history here at Trinity Church, Colonel Light Gardens. I also want to start off by saying a very big thank you to William Taylor and the preaching team at St Helens in London, who I listen to a lot, this being the fifth service that we've done in nine days. I'm very consciously standing on the shoulders of some of their great work in the book of Galatians today. Perhaps what I think is most striking about Galatians is the tone of the letter as it kicks off. Have a look at how Paul speaks to the Galatians in verse 6, and Kay read it really well for us. Where Paul says to the Galatians, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning 
to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. There's great conviction there, there's great passion, a willingness to condemn false teaching that's repeated again in verse 9 just to make the point. Then verse 10 shows us the Apostle's willingness to be unpopular for the sake of serving Christ. Verse 10, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God or am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And immediately, just in these opening few verses, it cuts across the kind of prevailing mood, the prevailing culture in much of the church today where we gravitate far more easily to the many things Jesus had to say about Christian love and for one another and many calls to unity from Jesus and across the New Testament. Just to pick out one important one uh, from Jesus as he prepares to go to the cross that very first Easter, he modelled for us a great prayer, not only for his followers then but for all followers throughout time. And Jesus prayed, and it was recorded for us in, uh, I'll jump in at John chapter 17, verse 22, and just listen along, where Jesus, speaking of his disciples, there and throughout time, he says, I've given them glory that you gave me, speaking to uh, God the Father, that they may be one as we are one, that same unity that exists between God the Father and the Son. He says, I in them and you in me, so that they, including us, may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. It's a very important instruction there from Jesus linking Christian unity with an evidence to people watching on that Christ really does love us, that God the Father sent uh, Jesus to us. So it's a very important call for unity there from Jesus and many places across the New Testament. How do you reconcile that with these very firm words here from the Apostle Paul? Well, let's keep looking to find out. We've already seen that in verses 6 to 10, what's got Paul so fired up is that the Galatians are falling for another gospel, another kind of declaration of good news, which, verse 7, is really no gospel at all. The gospel of Jesus, this good news about him, is at the centre of this stoush. So what are we to take from what Paul says here about the gospel? Well, first point to note is the origin of this good news about Jesus and what this means for Paul's authority to speak on the matter. Verse 1, as we kicked off, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul kicks off the letter by saying to the Galatians, he is an apostle, a sent one, directly commissioned by Jesus Christ and God the Father. And in one sense, of course, all Christians are sent ones to herald the good news about Jesus. But what Paul is making a a clear distinction here is what I would just call a, a capital A apostle, someone commissioned by Jesus himself and authorised to speak on his behalf in a way that none of us here are. Verses 11 and 12, Paul then follows this line of thought through, saying, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. 
I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So the gospel message that Paul has proclaimed among them is not a matter of interpretation. Paul is commissioned directly by God and his gospel comes from no earthly origin. It's God's great plan that this good news is conveyed to his world through Jesus and his capital A apostles and together we have... uh, Uh, we have the Bible which represents this view perfectly. So Paul, very clearly speaking with God's authority, can say then to the Galatians, verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But have a listen to this very short summary of the Gospel that he gives in verse 4. As he speaks of Jesus as being the one who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God, our God and Father. These short few words say a lot that's worth remembering. Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us. The problem of sin between us and God is that serious, we need a rescuer, someone from outside, someone from heaven, come to save. A very humbling truth. Many would like to portray Jesus' primary work as being a great teacher with a grace and a perspective that this world needs more of to teach us to live better lives and of course Jesus was a great teacher. All of those things are true. But his primary work at the heart of the Gospel is that he came to save. If someone's drowning, you don't stand there in the boat and try and teach them how to swim. You certainly don't throw them a manual on how to swim. They need someone to jump in and save them. If someone's drowning, they need a rescuer. And when it comes to our world, this present evil age, as Paul describes it, we don't want to be told that we're drowning in our rebellion against God. We don't like being told that our sins are that much of a problem that we need a saviour. If anything... We're in love with the idea of being self-saviors. We love those inspirational stories of people overcoming the odds. We love to be told that we can be perfectly acceptable to God from the perspective of some by the strength of our own good deeds and intentions. And the Christian, kind of note the air quotes if you're listening along online version of this, is that we don't need to talk about sin anymore. We don't need to hold to a biblical definition of sin. And the concept of God's wrath against sin, well, that's just so deeply unpopular, let's dispense with it. We can be Christian, note the air quotes, simply by following Jesus' kinder teachings, doing our best and all will be well. That is not true. Because at the heart of the Gospel, the good news, not of this world, but from God, is Jesus giving himself for our sins to rescue us and God the Father showing his acceptance of this sacrifice by raising Jesus from the dead. Now, if you've been here a Christian with us for a while, you might be sitting there saying, Matt, we just did Easter. (laughs) You know, Jesus' death on the cross and the resurrection is pretty basic stuff and I agree with you. 
It's a very straightforward gospel message. Most of our kids in our programs, if you got them up front, would have it down. But we need to be clear on it here because Paul is, ex- is expressing his astonishment that some people who apparently got all of these truths at some time in the past, people who understood God's grace to us in Christ, are now turning to a different gospel. We'll look at more detail at how different gospels work next week. But we need to be clear, just as Paul was clear on the gospel, because the problem in our day is no different. Sadly, you cannot walk into any building in the city which has church above the door and trust that it is a gospel-centred church, preaching the same message of the gospel handed down from Paul. In many cases, a very different gospel is preached. And what Paul is saying here very clearly is that that is no gospel at all because it's not his opinion, it's not his conclusion from reflection or in-depth studies. This gospel came from God to him by revelation and it was given him to preach to the world unchanged. Now, sadly, we could pull on all stories from all over the world across different denominations, but I thought it wiser just to limit uh, things to my personal experience on conversations I've actually been a part of, which, of course, restricts us to the Anglican Church. Very sadly, you cannot walk into any Anglican Church in Adelaide and take for granted that they are proclaiming this one true gospel from God that we need rescue from our sins, rescue from this age. And this age, by the way, is stretching from Jesus' first coming, that very first Easter, until his return. This age, so we're not just talking about now. But it's saying in this age, by default, it's called a very evil age, because by default, we are against God. We don't even realise or like to be told that we are so helplessly lost in our sins that we need a rescuer from outside, whose name is Jesus, who gave himself for our sins on the cross, that very first Good Friday, and raised him from the dead on Easter Sunday. As I uh, went through ordination training here in the Adelaide uh, Diocese, I was asked one day to present on the content of our evangelistic course, Life, which we run a number of times a year. It's just a basic step through the gospel for people wanting to find out more about Jesus. When I presented it, I was rather condescendingly mocked by my ordination supervisor and most of my fellow classmates for holding to and actually believing that Jesus physically rose from the dead. Man, he's just alive in our hearts. We don't need to believe that. Miracles don't happen. We don't need to argue that the tomb was really empty and all the different parts of that. And one of my classes that I had to audit at St Barnabas College, uh, let me say somewhat against my will, (laughs) as part of my ordination, the biggest class argument we had was on whether or not Jesus died as our substitute on the cross to satisfy God's wrath against sin. Three-hour lecture, the argument started 10 minutes into it, the entire lecture disappeared. It was one of the biggest arguments I'd ever been a part of and people unenrolled for the course on that 
partly because they didn't feel the person leading the course was quite tough enough against uh, us gospel-believing uh, Christians uh, on Jesus' need, the need for Jesus' death on the cross as our substitute. I didn't think they were being particularly encouraging, but the people on the other side um, thought it obviously serious enough that they needed to withdraw immediately from the course. This idea that our sin is that significant, that Jesus had to die to rescue us, to satisfy God's wrath against sin, well, you won't find agreement on that at the Anglican Clergy Conference, you won't find agreement on that at the Adelaide Anglican Synod held every year. Quite simply, a very different gospel is preached by many in our city today. And what does the Apostle Paul have to say, authorised by Jesus, to speak on his behalf? Well, as uncomfortable as it is, it's quite plainly written there for us in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Wherever there is no agreement with the Apostle Paul on the heart of the Gospel, quite simply put, we are not dealing with brothers and sisters in Christ. We are not to apply Jesus' teaching on unity with people who don't hold to Jesus' Gospel. We are to call it out. We are to condemn it. Why is that so important? Why is Paul being so firm on this, why does Matt have to apply this passage in this way and make us all feel so uncomfortable we could hear a pin drop? <laughs> well, let's work quickly through the rest of the passage to see what else it has to say and then we'll tie it all together. This whole next section from uh, verse 11 in chapter 1 right through to chapter 2 verse 10 seems quite clearly to be making a counter-argument it's Paul defending himself against those who attacked his authority on the Gospel with the Galatians. Now, you have to be uh, kind of careful doing this, but with what we have in the rest of Galatians, plus the book of Acts, which gives us some further background, it seems as though these people who were perverting the Gospel were playing on a temporary disagreement that broke out between the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. There's more on it next week, but you can read on this disagreement from verse 11 in chapter 2. Paul won the argument, Peter acknowledged he was in the wrong. Now, bear in mind Galatia is in modern-day Turkey and communication isn't quite as instantaneous as it is today. It seems like false teachers came in after this, playing on this temporary fallout between Paul and Peter to exalt themselves and set themselves up as a higher authority than Paul. And the argument may well have gone something like this. Well, it's great news that you've started out with Jesus, with what you've heard about him from Paul. But we come from the church in Judea, home base. From the original apostles like Peter who lived and learned the gospel from Jesus. Not like this Paul, we sent him out. His authority is secondary, we're the real deal. You've made a good start but you must press on and do X, Y, Z if you want to be truly acceptable to God today. Now, if the argument went something like that, it makes total sense that Paul would go on and on, like he does from 1.11 to 2 verse 10. I'll just pull out the highlights quickly for you. It makes total sense, verse 11, that Paul would be at pains to point out that the gospel he preached is not of human origin. Verse 15, 
that God set him apart and called him by his grace to proclaim this gospel, gospel to the Gentiles. That's every non-Jew, which uh, we are here in view. His response to God's calling was not to consult any human being, verse 16. I did not go up to Jerusalem, verse 17, to see those who were already apostles. Instead, he went to Arabia. It was only three years later that he went to Jerusalem and then it only seemed to be to get acquainted with Peter, some more of a social visit. He didn't see the rest of the uh, apostles, only James, the Lord's brother as well. And he says, the churches in Judea didn't know me. They only heard that the one who previously persecuted the church, which was Paul, was now preaching the faith and verse 24, they praise God because of me. It was only 14 years later, chapter 2, verse 1, that he presented the gospel to the apostles. And after some controversy caused by false teachers who, spent spy, who sent spies into Paul's company, they didn't give any ground on the gospel. He's very clear about that. So that, and this is second half of chapter 2, verse 5, and this is vital, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He's speaking to the Galatians, but also for us. And the apostles, held in high esteem in the church, not that that's particularly important to Paul, as you can read there in chapter 2, he says, God shows no favouritism. Uh, bit of a sucker punch there. Verse 6, they confirmed Paul preached the true gospel and added nothing to his message. They instead recognised Paul had been entrusted with the task of proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles, including the Galatians. They extended fellowship to him and agreed Paul should go and continue the work of proclaiming the gospel. Paul makes such a long argument out of it because the given by God, good news about Jesus, the gospel as we call it, is at stake. This gospel that has been preached has been confirmed by all the apostles as God's given gospel for the nations. And given its God-given origins and its purpose to proclaim the rescue from sins that we all need, every tribe from every nation, that its preaching to the nations is the very will of God the Father, Paul makes a detailed case that this is not to be tampered with. Paul is so fierce in defending it because the truth of the gospel must be preserved for us. We must preserve it for our community, our city, our nation, our world. Because it is only by the one true gospel that people can find rescue. Two years ago, at the Anglican Clergy Conference in the Barossa, an anonymous question came in via their SMS. Uh, like us today, it's all anonymous, we store no numbers in the phone, so fire away. Um, uh, the question that came through on that day was, how can we be unified as an Anglican communion if some think that the doctrine of God's wrath against sin is a dangerous doctrine that needs to be eliminated, while others see it as a key part of the gospel message that must be proclaimed? Now, I don't know which side of the fence sent that uh, question through, but I do think it's very insightful. I don't remember the answer, I must say. It was one of those kind of forgettable sort of times up in question time, we need to keep talking about these important truths together kind of responses. Yet the answer 
is actually pretty straightforward. We don't need to bend all our minds to discern it. Quite simply, we cannot be unified. We cannot unify ourselves with people who do not agree with the opening verses of Galatians, with the given by God, affirmed by the Apostles' gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. People who will not agree that Jesus was actually raised from the dead. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Galatians. And that Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Chapter 1, verse 4. Any other gospel than that, quite simply, is no gospel at all. And what are we to make then of people who run churches and teach people another gospel that does not agree with the not of this world, given by God, affirmed by all the apostles' gospel? Well, as uncomfortable as it is, the answer again is clear. The Apostle Paul says, let them be under God's curse. Now, it's my observation that there are two types of older Christian. Those who rejoice in the proclamation of the gospel right through to the end. And we are blessed with a good number in our church here. They are a treasure and a great model for us that should not be undervalued by any of us. But there is another type And I want to say, regardless of your age, if this is all new to you, I'm not lining you up uh, for this. (laughs) Uh, Feel free to keep thinking along these truths. But please know we think the truth about the gospel is vitally important to our church. But to those who, upon some resolve and some reflection, have gone down uh, the line of sort of saying, well... We were all that black and white once, but then we mature. We were all that passionate when we were young. But as you get older, you mature, and you see that there's many more shades of grey, and you learn not to be so judgmental anymore. They don't articulate a different gospel with any clarity. They just want to say rather condescendingly, you're wrong, but don't worry, you'll grow out of it. (laughs) Now, I don't think I can lay title to the claim of young man anymore. I'm 43. Um, I know I don't look it. (laughs) Got a young wife, I look after my skin, and now I drink bone broth. (laughs) So I just need to joke to lighten the mood. It was getting rather heavy in the room. But this is a serious point. If ever I get up and preach to you a different gospel, to the only true given by God, not from this world, revealed to the apostles' gospel. Let me be eternally condemned. As for you, I do want you to wrestle with this because I am worried. I suspect a time is coming rather soon where we will have to take a stand on the gospel of Jesus. And your hearts, like mine, will want to gravitate to those who call for patience, call to unity, call to avoid conflict and keeping people happy. 
I don't think I'm being alarmist about this. It's happening in Anglican communions across the world, like New Zealand and Scotland, just to name a few. In our own city, it's happening in the Uniting Church, which, as of a few months ago, isn't quite so united, and I think that's actually a good thing, with a number of key gospel-proclaiming churches feeling that they need to distance themselves from the broader church. And many are actually redoing their sign work right now to remove the word uniting from their name. Over elements in their church, passing amendments at a governance level that are winding back key parts of this gospel message about Jesus. I'm very concerned about what's happening in our Anglican church locally here in Adelaide, appointments being made to churches and schools, very worryingly, in our city, installing people who simply preach a different gospel. And sadly, I could illustrate with many more distressing stories. What worries me, if push comes to shove and our church here gets dragged into the eye of the storm, that you might be caught unawares and just gravitate to where we naturally do and to run away from conflict, that we actually might become disunified on the core of the gospel. Please don't. Please take these words to heart from Galatians, that we must hold firm to the one true, given by God, affirmed by all the apostles, gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. The same Father who raised Jesus from the dead. Black and white, no shade of grey. Now I realise if you come along today just to try church out for the first time, you might not have got what you expected. We would love to keep working through the gospel with you. We'd love to read through the gospel with you. And we would love the opportunity to share more with you why it is kind of such at the heartbeat of our church that I would deliver a sermon like this. We planted this church in 2013 with the express purpose of sharing this one true gospel with many. And God has been very kind to us since. Wind the clock back. Holy Trinity Adelaide, our city's first church, was planted in the new colony of South Australia with the same gospel intent in 1836. Before that, the very first Christian service was held on Australian soil in Sydney Cove on February 3, 1788, by a gospel man named Richard Johnson. He was chosen to come to this country to establish a gospel-hearted church in the new colony. He was chosen for the job by such luminaries as John Newton and William Wilberforce, I always have trouble saying that, for the job. So keen were they to get the gospel right at the heart of our nation. His first sermon on Australian shores was on Psalm 116, verses 12 and 13, which reads, What shall I render? Unto the Lord, for all his benefits towards me, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Now, the sermon itself was not written down for us 
but it was a good one all about the gospel by all accounts. Well, almost all accounts. The problem was the first Australian governor, Arthur Phillip, didn't like it and he had a bit of a fallout with Johnson over it, with the governor directing him to move away from such you know, matters of thanksgiving and salvation to more practical concerns for a young penal colony and that he should uh, be doing much more teaching on moral and ethical instruction. Johnson's sermon text, the following Sunday, Galatians 1, verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, so much for the gospel that you have revealed to our world uh, that shows us both the depths of our sin but just how amazingly loved by you that we are that it would always be your plan, long heralded by the prophets through the centuries, to send your King, our Messiah, our Saviour here to rescue us in your Son, Jesus. We thank you for the clarity uh, that you gave by your Spirit to those first apostles who wrote down these words and teaching for us. And we thank you for the many faithful men and women who have withstood trials from, both from outside the church but more alarmingly from inside the church, down through the centuries, to walk back and to preach a different gospel than the one handed to the Apostle Paul from our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We pray this one true gospel might always be at the heart of this church and indeed every church we plant, because we know it is this gospel only that can save and can rescue Please bring much glory to yourself as we proclaim the gospel together for the sake of uh, your glory, for the salvation of many and for the great blessing on us to be part of your great gospel plan for our city and our world. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.